This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. That, to me, was like one of the most striking elements of the book when I started to write it, which I didn't really intend, was that Jello has this sort of dark side to it. There's something extra pleasant about picking topics that are superficially light and then portraying the darkness underneath them. I find that really uh, satisfying. This is The Food Podcast, a Village Soundcast Network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. I desperately want to move forward in my work and in my life and not get trapped in the past as my mother did. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. When I was little, my best friend's mom made the best popsicles. They were so full of sweetness, not the thin, icy kind my mom made from orange juice. One suck and all the juice would be gone. No, these were solid, deep red, and almost melt-proof. My friend and I would sit on the back step, dirt on our knees and tiny branches in our hair from crawling under the bushes into the mean lady's yard next door to sneak her raspberries. That was us, licking popsicles that would last forever. Everything at my friend's house was a little bit better in my eyes. A dainty working mom who had her own dressing room. There was wall-to-wall carpeting, a brown plush den with a television so big it sat like a piece of furniture on the floor. Glass doors leading into a ruby-red living room with Diana Ross playing on the record player. A kitchen with a peekaboo window into the peacock blue dining room and a tiny powder room off the kitchen complete with a paper cup dispenser to rinse your mouth after brushing your teeth. There were french fries served with roast beef at dinner, a coffee cake under the glass dome, always on the counter, and jello in the fridge. It was heaven. One day I asked my friend's mother if she could give me the recipe for her popsicles. I remember how glamorous she looked. Tiny high-heeled clogs on her feet and big burgundy and gold circular glasses pushed up on top of her head. It's easy, she laughed. Just add jello to the popsicle mold. Your mom will have jello at home. You can make them too. But my mom didn't have jello. No pop either. Our house wasn't a righteous household, but it was different. It was jello free. I had to find out why. Today on the Food Podcast, I talked to Ali Robottom, author of Jello Girls, a mother daughter story woven into the history of J E L L O, one of America's most iconic brands. We talk about how wealth can break a family even a family built on something as simple and sweet as a bowl full of jello. It's all about women's roles and how we can break free from a glistening cherry red mold. Today on the Food Podcast. Oh, 
Back when I was a naive young woman with minimal culinary knowledge, I thought that the Jell-O people invented jellied desserts. I had no clue that Jell-O was an industrialized version of a historic dessert called jelly. Just like mayonnaise and oxo cubes, I thought jelly was born in a factory, not a 15th century European kitchen. Cooking school set me straight. You could make mayonnaise with eggs and oil. Oxo was just boiled down meat in powdered form. And gelatin was collagen made from bones and connective tissues. Imagine the original days of jelly making. A massive European kitchen, copper pots hanging and steam swirling from a cauldron on the stove, filled with bones and bits of things. A cook standing on a stool with a long wooden spoon in hand, tending to the bubbling broth as it boiled down, 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 until all that was left was gelatin so thick it could set any liquid into a solid, molded dessert. Imagine the complex jelly molds that informed the aesthetic. Banquet tables housing tiny architectural wonders. Gothic castles, spiral domes. I've seen flying buttresses in illustrations, all made of jelly. Blackberry, cherry, lemon, grape. There were creamy versions, layered with berries or sliced fruit, suspended within. Industrialization fine-tuned the gelatin-making process. First, sheets or leaves of gelatin came along, primarily for the well-to-do cook. But by 1845, an affordable powdered version of gelatin became available. Anyone could now make jelly. My husband's great-grandmother has a recipe for rhubarb jelly in a journal of recipes she kept. Put one and a half pounds of rhubarb in a preserving pan with equal equal weight weight of of sugar and sufficient water to prevent the rhubarb burning or sticking to the pan. Then cook over a slow fire until the rhubarb is tender. Then pass it through a sieve. For each pint of this pulp, allow one ounce of leaf gelatin. Turn the mixture into a mold. Leave to set. When you turn it out, fill the center with either whipped cream or custard. But Jell-O, the little boxes with instant jelly within, didn't come around until the late 1800s. In 1899... A man named Orator Francis Woodward bought the patent to Jell-O from its inventor, who was a man named Pearl Waite, for $450, which is a modern-day equivalent of around $4,000. That's Allie Rowbottom, the great-great-great-niece of O.F. Woodward and the author of Jell-O Girls. I spoke to her in the fall at the end of her Jell-O Girls book tour. I had been making my own jellies over the summer after finding a dramatic mold in an antique shop and another on a shelf in my mother-in-law's basement. I made Hascap jelly, blackberry jelly, and Gothic rosehip jelly. Orator's son Ernest married a woman named Edith Hartwell, and Edith was the aunt... <laughs> of my grandmother. So she was my mother's great aunt. And this is like important because Ernest Woodward would become the steward of the Jell-O company. He and Edith would become the stewards in a lot of ways of the small town in upstate New York where the Jell-O company was situated, a town called Leroy. They were very uh, active in the town and philanthropic. 
when Ernest died, Edith became the matriarch of that particular branch of the Jello family tree. Edith, Allie explained, was very close to her niece, Allie's grandmother, Midge, and by extension, Midge's daughter, Mary, who was Allie's mother. So... When Order died and Edith and Ernest decided to sell the Jell-O company along with their board, it ended up selling for an exchange of stock worth $67 million, which is, in modern-day terms, you know, billions of dollars. I'm not sure how many. I will say that the fortune was split among many different branches, so Order had a lot of kids. So there are, you know, many heirs to Jell-O out there. It's definitely not just me. And like, obviously time has passed and, and the fortune has shifted and changed. Meanwhile, Jell-O's marketing campaigns, they have also shifted and changed to suit or drive American values over the decades. A quick Google will take you to the face of Jell-O from the early days. The Jell-O girl, a wholesome girl in a Victorian dress, blonde bob and bangs, making Jell-O all by herself. Serving Jello, hosting a party with her koopy dolls, sometimes demure, sometimes feisty, but always sweet. After World War II, Jello advertising, driven by a team of domestic scientists and Jello cookbooks, were geared towards pulling women back into the kitchen with quick, easy, colorful desserts the whole family will love. Don't tasty desserts take time to make? asks one woman to another. Not when you make them with Jello, she smiles. Or how about you get a smile from a grumpy husband when you say Jello is for dessert? In 1961, The Joys of Jello was published with 250 recipes advising women on how to create gorgeous salads and desserts easily at every meal. Allie Robottom writes, at the end of the day, housewives were responsible for strengthening and maintaining the nuclear American family. And Jella was here to help, to nourish and cajole, to serve as the centerpiece of social order. Centerpiece of social order? I had always thought that Jello was a birthday party food for rowdy kids or the top ingredient in fabulous popsicles. And speaking of popsicles... Next in the Jell-O marketing timeline came Bill Cosby, a wholesome, funny dad who loved pudding pops and was the face of Jell-O for almost 30 years. Bill Cosby is now a convicted sex offender. Then came Weight Watchers. Sugar-free Jell-O is zero points on the Weight Watchers scale. Then Jell-O jigglers. Then Jell-O shots. It is a demise to say the least, into the darker side of life. And Jell-O Girls, the memoir, chronicles it all. Because Allie's family's history runs parallel to the Jell-O story. Not woven into it exactly, but travels on the same trajectory. It's important to note that her grandparents may have been royalty in the small town of Leroy, New York, where the factory was situated. But the family didn't work at the Jell-O factory. They didn't own it. They lived off shares of the sale of the brand. But they were an ideal Jell-O family on the surface. One where women planned meals around the joys of Jell-O, made cocktails for their husbands, and ate together at the table with their children. 
a young Mary, Allie's mother, at one end, and Mary's brother, Tom, at the other. A family trapped in a mold. Allie tells the story of what Leroy didn't see, the trappings of patriarchy, men who lashed out, and women who retreated inward. The cover of Jello Girls captured all of this and pulled me in. The cover is a really beautiful image of a sparkling red jello mold with a singular doll trapped inside um, with her arms sort of up like she's trying to get free. That to me was like one of the most striking elements of the book when I started to write it, which I didn't really intend was that jello has this sort of dark side to it and dark not only for the women in my family, but also for, you know, women in America at a certain point in history and I just found that so compelling and I always, I think I'm drawn to dark material. So there's something extra pleasant about picking topics that are superficially light and then portraying the darkness underneath them. I find that really uh, satisfying. It's no wonder that Allie is drawn to darkness. Starting with Allie's grandparents and their drinking, purposelessness, the lack of love and her grandmother's cancer, loneliness, Her mother Mary's creativity and flair as a child, squashed by an often unkind older brother. Mary's mental health issues, hospitalization, promiscuity. Mary's marriage, the birth of Allie, a broken marriage. Her desire to create art through memoir writing and painting without success. And eventually, Mary dying of cancer at 45, just like her own mother. I wrestled with this notion as I read the book, the idea of being simultaneously trapped and supported by a brand meant to represent happy domesticity. Is it hard to find purpose in life, love, and happiness when money isn't an issue? I couldn't help wondering if Allie wished, when she lived at home with her mom, that her mother would just go out and get a job. God, yes. Oh, absolutely. I think that you really nailed it when you say a lack of purpose, especially during my adolescence, when my mother was struggling with her artwork. I mean, she was always trying to make art a lucrative career for herself, but the way that she went about doing it, and I sort of touch on this in the book, is that she would take classes, gather more accessories, like computer programs to help her digitize this or that, or paints, like just things that cost a lot of money that instead of just actively and aggressively selling her work. I mean, I think I really fashioned sort of my career and like my path in opposition to her because I did see a lot of sort of aimlessness and behind that, a lack of self-confidence and a lack of sort of like confidence to earn money when she had had the privilege that she had. But, you know, there was a time in my adolescence where she was worried about money. She didn't work She was a single mother at that point. College was coming. Like she was very concerned about how, and she was, should I work at the library? Should I take this job? Should I take that job? But she never did it. And I was always like, please just take the job. Like it would be good for you. She never did. Wealth or not, I don't think Mary was the only one who lacked purpose when life for homemakers was white picket fences and meal planning. Jello desserts were meant to make the housewife's life easier said the ads. But I think those desserts were too easy. It only took a few minutes to dissolve powder into hot water and pour it into a mold. So she had a martini, perhaps a cigarette, 
But then what? And it's like what Betty Friedan was was speaking about when she was trying to identify this problem that has no name. It's that sort of aimless, is this all? Is that it? I can't help it. Flight of the Concords comes to mind. You say something like, is that it? I know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say, oh, yeah, that's it. But I digress. They made the mold. They vacuumed the house. They made their husband a martini. It's waiting on the bar. Their kids have all been to the playground and back again. And is this all? I can ask that question, too. And I I think the answer is just always comes from art and making it. So Ali wrote, that's her art. She's now living in L.A., a 32-year-old woman, married, with a Ph.D. in creative writing. She teaches, researches, and now is working on another memoir, this one exploring other parts of her life, namely her father's side of the family. Writing, she says. It's just what keeps me feeling grounded in a sense of of purpose again and clear on what my job on this planet is, I guess. Everybody's art is different, right? But it's like a way of making meaning out of all of the things that happen in my life that feel confusing or happen in the world that feel confusing and unfair or beautiful or uh, run the gamut between the two. The confusing and unfair part, I'm guessing, refers to her adolescence. Allie says her childhood was happy. It was housed in the light. But that lack of purpose, it permeated the well-being of the house and affected her father, too. I think my attachments, especially to my mom, but to both parents, were pretty strong and secure. But once I was in middle school and towards the end of my middle school time, so around like seventh and eighth grade, and this had been going on for longer, but my father had been growing increasingly distant and I think angry and frustrated himself. And that too ties into that idea of privilege and entitlement. He began an affair with a teacher of mine. And learning about that, I think, really changed the way that I saw the world and saw my father, obviously, and saw men and saw myself and my mother in relationship to this other woman and fashioning myself more in alignment with what I saw as the traits of that other woman became an obsession of mine as I entered my adolescence. The obsession manifested in the form of an eating disorder. Restricting her eating fulfilled a need to control my changing body and my changing identity. You know, as I was like towing the the waters of womanhood, this really traumatic event happened in my family. And so I needed to shut off my development in order to survive. And strangely, ironically, this is when Jello entered Ali's diet. Jello, which has minimal points on the Weight Watchers scale of eating, So she and her mother, both lost and looking for control, ate Jell-O together. Here's Allie reading a passage taken from Jell-O Girls. So I joined Weight Watchers too, and points became all that mattered. They gave our world order. We made sugar-free Jell-O together, preparing big vats of raspberry and grape we kept in the fridge. A safe food we could eat with abandon, the faintly metallic taste dissolving on our tongues. Sometimes Mary made a face when she spooned it in, like medicine. It's really not good, she'd say, still eating. Don't eat it then, I'd snap, annoyed. But I'm so hungry, she'd say, like an admonished child. Most nights we sat together at the kitchen table, 
a bowl of wobbly pink in the space between us, spooning it into our mouths as we tallied up the day's intake. I always beat her. The game for me was easy. When she dropped out, I continued. I felt victorious. I felt I had somehow won proof of whatever it was that would spare me her fate, imperfect and discarded by my father, a man whose gaze defined us both. Allie's mother died recently of cancer. She had been sick for a long time. Allie cared for her. Time and maturity and a faded need for the gaze of Allie's father had brought them together. Jella was all Mary could eat for many months before she died. So for her birthday, Allie, her husband John, and Mary's good friend Judy, who was always there for Mary, made her a birthday cake made of Jello. It was black cherry. We had no actual mold, so we used a glass Pyrex bowl and ended up just turning it upside down and topping it in whipped cream. I walked her down to the kitchen table and uh, Everybody gathered around and partook of the jello because we didn't want her to feel like she was alone in this food that nobody really wanted to eat. And honestly, like I remember being sort of surprised by the fact that it wasn't entirely grotesque. I, I quite liked it. And I know that Judy actually really likes jello. So it was a nice afternoon, but my mom got tired really quickly, took her back upstairs. There's a passage from the book that stuck with me where Ali writes about the astronaut Shannon Lucid, who in 1996 embarked on a 140-day mission to the Russian space station Mir as the station's first female astronaut. She brought powdered jello with her and ate it only on Sundays to remind herself of home and to keep track of the days until her return. Ali writes, this was, and perhaps always has been, jello in a nutshell. An emblem of home, a keeper of time, equal parts powder and water, nostalgia and modernity. Because Jell-O is almost a vintage foodstuff now. It's always about looking back, much like writing a memoir. Allie's mother had written a memoir in the years before she died, a stack of paper that didn't amount to anything until Allie incorporated her words into Jell-O Girls. But Mary's lens, it was angry and resentful at times while Ali's is more critical, as though she's learning from the past to change the future. For me, writing uh, material that was based in the past, it's such an emotional mind trick, I guess, because you spend so much time every day in the past, filtering the past, looking back on the past, and then you exit your you know, writing space or your art space, and you're in the present and renegotiating the relationship of the past to your present life can be really challenging after you sort of exit this fugue state where you've been writing and or working on it. I desperately want to move forward in my work and in my life and not get trapped in the past as my mother did. Okay, this just in. My dad did not like Jello when he was a boy. He walked home every day for lunch with his brother Angus, sister Jeannie, and their father, who was the principal of their school. My grandmother would have the table set in the dining room, a hot lunch waiting for them. She wasn't a great cook. She preferred to garden and paint landscapes, but she liked this family time. He says sometimes they'd have jello for dessert. She tried to make it fun by calling it a castle. The clouds on top were whipped cream, but my dad wasn't buying it. 
he didn't like the way his older brother Angus conducted science experiments with his jello. He'd swish it back and forth in his mouth, then run it through his teeth, trying to see how quickly he could alter the viscosity of the liquid in his mouth. Incidentally, my Uncle Angus also drank milk through his linen napkin, testing to see if strained milk tasted differently. It was all too gross for my dad. He told me this story today, the lost explanation behind why we didn't have jello in our house growing up. It was my dad's choice, all that swishing, not my mom's. My mom didn't seem to miss it. She's more of a molasses bread and chocolate chip cookie kind of person. Baking is part of her rhythm, part of her art. Jello can be art. I think my blackberry and thyme jelly, molded into the shape of a French Gothic cathedral, look just like a Dutch still life. As Ali says, The answer is just always comes from art and making it. Thanks, Ali Robottom, for sharing your story with me and the rest of us. You can find Jello Girls where all books are sold. Let's keep the Jello conversation going. Are you a Jello maker? Did you swish it around? Tell us on Instagram at The Food Podcast or at Lindsay Cameron Wilson or on Twitter at The Food Podcast. And if you have a second, you will have a second if you're a Jello maker. Please subscribe, rate, and review. Your support is everything. And as always, thanks to Jen Grant for our theme song. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.